Hello and welcome to Second Look. Uh, doing something a little bit different this week, but I'm your host, Benjamin Green. This is the show where we pause and take a second look at things going on and ideas in politics and culture. And this week, we are taking a second look at people. <laughs> I'm joined by Evan Shroggy and Kyle Foley who graciously agreed to be on the show tonight. How are you doing, guys? Wonderful. Doing pretty good. All righty. Well, I tweeted this afternoon that I didn't know what I was going to make this week's episode about, and these two guys were like, hey, talk about us. So <laughs> that's what we're doing. So for the first round, we'll keep this... Wow, that makes it sound way more than intense than it actually is. First round of questions. I, I should make this a game show. Uh, okay, Kyle, tell us about yourself. Where are you from? I'm from Orlando, Florida. Born and raised. Wow. You like it there? That's a hard question to answer. We'll go with most of the time. Most of the time. Okay. How about you, Evan? Where are you from? So... That's a that's a hard question to answer. Um, I demand to see a birth certificate right now. I've well, no, all all on the continent, but um, I was born in New York, and but I grew up all my life in uh, Arizona, in the West Valley, um, and then I went to school in Michigan State, and then now I'm in Chicago. So kind of doing a couple weird lines all around the United States. Hey, but you're f sort of from Arizona, so this is a this is something automatically in your favor over Kyle. So, I'm oh, like definitely that. biased there. <laughs> uh, how'd you guys get involved with that set? Uh, Evan, go first. Um, I Saw the publication, I think, on Facebook somewhere. Somebody had shared a link or two, and um, I was looking to do, you know, some writing while still in law school and wanted to uh, kind of get my ideas out there and see if anybody liked them and applied. And days later, Stephen uh, Perkins accepted my application, as it were, and been writing ever since, so it was a good time. Awesome. So, at, at, um, I feel like Outset kind of typifies the current ongoing struggle in the, the young conservative arena between conservatism and libertarianism and who, who agrees with what and who's in the middle. Where are you on that spectrum? Uh, right in the middle of the middle, I guess. You know, I, I consider myself to be uh, more conservative um, to an extent, but more, I guess, in the British sense of the word, more traditional, uh, trying to conserve kind of what's best about America and what's best about, um, you know, our society, but understanding, you know, kind of at the same time that there's needs for reform, not radical change. I'm not a 
not one of those types of people, but uh, within the context of kind of, you know, structured out reform when it needs to happen. So I kind of fall in the middle between the libertarians and I guess the more traditional conservatives here in America. Sometimes this, I agree with one side and sometimes I don't, but it's part of the fun, really. So do you have a 2016 candidate? <laughs> um, well, you know, up until recently it was Jeb Bush. I'm not afraid to say it. But, uh, don't be. We shall. I'm just worried about what Kyle's going to say. Um, <laughs> no, that you maybe should be afraid of. <laughs> no, uh, but he hasn't really been performing too well, but I'm going to give him through, uh, through well, tomorrow. I mean, I, I don't really have a choice at this point. So, <laughs> um, But after that, I, I'm not entirely sure yet, so we shall see. All right, guess, Kyle. Oh, what was no, that? Go ahead. No, go for it. Okay. Kyle, over to you. Um, conservative libertarian spectrum, how you got involved with Outset and your 2016 candidate. All right, so I'll start with the Outset thing. So I was just minding my own business, hanging out, and uh, this guy, Stephen Perkins, gave me a call, and he said, you know, I heard about you. Here you're pretty great, and I want you on the team. Uh, I declined it first because my application to Breitbart was still pending. I was denied because I did not have the undying love for Donald Trump that was required. Um, so unfortunately, I didn't get that job. But then Stephen Perkins was still there groveling for me to come work with him. So I graciously blessed him with my presence at Outset. Uh, I've been with Outset since, I want to say I started in August, started doing some podcasting stuff with Young Guns, been slacking off a little bit lately with that. We'll try to pick it back up soon. Um, and then I, I'm starting the Kyle Foley Experience show live this Friday night at 8 p.m., which is going to be sick, but it won't be on Outset because Stephen doesn't want to be responsible for anything I may or may not say. Yes, uh, which who is, does? Which is, which is fair. <laughs> um, I'm, doing a, I'm doing more writing now. I've got a few things in the works, so I'm doing some of that too, which is nice. I'm just kind of spend my days tweeting about stuff, which also so isn't that. Bad, but Do you prefer the writing or the podcasting? I prefer speaking. I'm a much better speaker than I am a writer because when That's I me write, too. yeah, when I write, I put I write like I'm talking, which isn't always the best way to write. Uh huh. But I'm getting better, so I enjoy the opportunities that I have and the opportunities that Stephen has given me. It's been really great. Um, on the conservative libertarian spectrum, I'm. We, if we're talking in principle, I lean actually closer towards the libertarian side. However, if we're leaning towards practicality, I, I tend to come across as very moderate in, in the way I speak. That's why I would, if anybody hears me say that I, I would say I'm close to the libertarian side, they'll laugh and tell me that's laughably false because they see the stuff I tweet and all that kind of stuff. Most of that is my understanding of government as it functions today which is very moderate, and it has to be very moderate because it's the only way to function, is finding middle ground. Um, and I do eventually want to be in some sort of elected office someday where I'm in a position to kind of have to be slightly more moderate and actually figure out solutions that will work. So, But my personal beliefs tend to be a lot more ideological than my practicality, uh, my beliefs in practice. So it's, uh, it's kind of weird to kind of put my stuff on the spectrum there. So I guess you could kind of put me in the, right between 
being libertarian and being a, a more moderate conservative. I think that might be a fair way to analyze myself there. Uh, okay. And then oh. I'm a I'm a I'm a Marco Rubio guy. He's my candidate. Just don't know if I can do that. <laughs> so so you're okay with Jeb Bush, but you're not okay with Marco Rubio. <laughs> Honestly, at this moment, Jeb Bush is higher on my list than Marco Rubio. I okay. won't vote for either of them in the primary, but yeah, at this moment, that is the case. I. Uh, you lost all credibility. I'm sorry. I'm sure both of you know, and everyone who's listening to this knows, I'm a Rand Paul fan, and so I was very, very, <laughs> very sad. Very, 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 very sad. I literally cried <laughs> when I saw that he dropped out of the race. Not even kidding. Uh, it was a sad day. I knew, like, I was expecting it to come. It just really caught me off guard when it came. So I'm looking for a new candidate, but it won't be either Bush or Rubio in the primary. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I mean, you... you, well, you by, by Arizona, you may not have much of a choice, honestly. Uh, <laughs> Arizona's yeah, at the tail if, end. If it's down to... Honestly, I expect Ted Cruz to stay in just about as long as he can. I'd be surprised if he drops out in before Arizona. If it's down to Rubio, Cruz, and Trump, by the time he gets to Arizona, I'll probably vote for Cruz. If it's down to Rubio and Trump, that's pretty much the only situation in which I could vote for Rubio in the primary. So the general, are... I might do it, but not in the primary. So you are more okay with voting for the man who panders for the libertarian vote, even though Ron Paul has very clearly called him a fraud, but you're less likely, but you wouldn't vote for the guy who's very, who even though you disagree with his beliefs, at least is strong in them. I don't know. That's a big fad. I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, the, thankfully, I do have a lot of time before the Arizona primary. I might just abstain. I don't know. My vote in the primary would probably be whoever hurts Trump the most if he's still in the race at that point. I Honestly. I have no qualms I have no qualms with people not voting in the primary, especially at that stage. I mean I, I would obviously prefer that everybody votes in the primary. But the uh, the general election is something we need everybody to vote in just because as bad as I think even Donald Trump would be, I mean he's the only one where I think would come between choosing the lesser of two evils. I really think all the other candidates, even though there are things that I disagree with with all of them. I think they're all good men, and I think they are all good leaders, and it wouldn't be choosing the lesser of two evils. Uh, maybe Cruz, too, but that's just personal issues I have with him. But I think Donald Trump is really the only one where it's like, he's the actually an evil and would actually maybe be the lesser of two evils. But I think a lot of the other guys, there's just, I mean, there's things we don't like, but it doesn't make them evils. I think genuinely they're they're good men, and they're, they're doing it. And women, I'll count Kylie Fiorina, even though she'll be out of the race by Thursday. Even though, well, I mean, she's been out for months, but she'll be officially out by, like, Thursday. She but says think, she's staying through to Ohio. Yeah, well, that doesn't work when you don't get any delegates and, and nobody cares about you. Ouch. I mean, I'm not going to hold back my opinion. I don't think she's a good candidate. I don't think she has any purpose of staying in the race. Her supporters, of course, will tell me that that's wrong and that she's this great candidate. But yeah, well, I would have told you that two weeks ago about Rand, so... 
In fact, I probably did. I you, know you and I went back and yeah. forth a lot. <laughs> so what? what's your guys' like big thing in politics that gets you... I mean, not necessarily riled up, but, like, what aspect of politics are you the most into? For me, it would probably be foreign policy, uh, and that's kind of a relatively recent development. Like, within the last year, I've started getting really uptight about that. Uh, I I don't know, but that's what... It, it irks me the most when I see people misrepresenting my beliefs on foreign policy and stuff like that. What what would that be with you guys? Kyle, why don't you go first? Immigration. I think we need to build a wall and deport every illegal, and I think that's uh, that's oh. the only way to, to uh, make America great again. But no, see, I... now, your gang of eight, you know, you're voting for Rubio, and he's supported no. shamnesty. <laughs> well, here's here's my thing. So immigration isn't, but quickly, my little thing on immigration, I'm very compassionate, and I think the approach needs to be kind of the one that Marco Rubio took. But anyway, um, no, that's not my biggest issue, because I don't think anybody really cares about that. I think in reality, my biggest issue, like with most people, would be foreign policy as well. I just have a different opinion on foreign policy than you do. Oh, yeah. and a different belief in how it would work, but I do agree that it's it's probably the most important issue, especially when we live in such a complicated geopolitical world. Now, let me just cut in here for a second and say I foreign policy is like my number one issue, but I don't necessarily think it's the most important. I think the most important issue is definitely the national debt. Um, and like some people, like Rand Paul is like, well... Our foreign policy depends on us being out of debt, and if you're doing that, then okay, I guess it's under the umbrella. But I think that should be our first, first big issue. So yeah, yeah. I think I think that's fair. I think national debt is probably the biggest issue. I I just think it's the one people aren't obviously going to really talk about as much, which is why. I really appreciated having Rand Paul in the race because I think he did bring attention to that when other people didn't really. Well, I just think it's the most unsolvable one, too. I mean, there's $19 trillion, and everybody has their own kind of pet project they want to spend, except for Rand, um, I think. But when your policies just kind of don't spend money on anything, really, that <laughs> yes, that'll solve the debt, I guess, but like... And then, you know, they all want to cut taxes. And yeah, we all want taxes low, but tax keep... Lower taxes isn't going to help us pay off the deficit any fa or off the debt, I should say, any faster. Certainly won't help with the deficit either. But so I think you know it's it's an issue. It's going to be a bigger problem if Bernie Sanders gets elected, and I think that's more of a possibility than people realize. Um, but as on the Republican side, they don't really have any because for every one time they talk about cutting taxes, they also talk about, you know, some pet project that they have or whatever um, that they're going to need to spend money on later, and then nothing changes. So that, unfortunately, it, it just can't go away, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. So so what, what do you see as, like... What, what's your pet issue, and then what do you see as the biggest issue if you think they're different? Oh, me? Yeah. Um, my pet issue uh, is pretty much anything domestic policy related. I like 
I'm like an octopus. I have my like tentacles in every different kind of debate there is. Um, <clears throat> and it is, what's amazing about the 2016 election is this, there's just so many issues that are bringing up all at once. You know, there's uh, women in the draft. There's building a wall. There's um, you know the presence of female candidates has drawn up the abortion debate again. Um, Mm-hmm. You know things like that, so it's a very exciting, silly type time to be in politics right now. Um, I think the number one issue that we're gonna face is, um, depending, I guess, on who is who's gonna get elected, because if the Republicans win, any Republican that wins. They all want to repeal and replace Obamacare, but they have no idea actually what to replace it with. Right. And that's a bad message to send to voters, and you can't just come out with a plan in October and expect everybody to jump on board with it. You know, the Republicans have controlled the House since 2010, and they haven't, you know, yes, we've had divided government since then, but almost no traction in so we need to figure out if we're going to actually replace Obamacare, what we're going to replace it with, and how that's both going to, A, drive down our debt, which Obamacare is supposed to increase exponentially, and actually provide a better alternative to what the Democrats proposed and rammed through in the final hours of you know 2010. So. Right. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Uh, a lot of people, I, it's funny, on Twitter you see the worst of every side of argument, but a lot of people get mad at the Republican Congress for not doing enough to uh, stop President Obama's actions, and then other people are like, well, look, they did everything they could do. And on this particular issue of Obamacare, I definitely feel like Congress could have done more, not by symbolically voting to repeal it over and over again like they did, but by actually putting forth a specific plan of, look, this is what we're going to do instead, this is why it's better, this is why it's going to be better for you. And that's something Congress hasn't done that they really need to do. And that'll largely depend on like I said, if there's a Democrat or a Republican in office, because, I mean, let's all be honest here and let's not kid ourselves, Obama's never going to overturn his signature health care law. It's his right. name, for goodness sake. And so I don't necessarily fault them to an extent for not coming up with something, but they could have framed that argument so much more about he's this is actually better for America, but he doesn't want to do it just because his name is on it. It's all about him. They could have totally turned that argument around, but he didn't do it. Or they didn't do it, I'm sorry. Um, and so traction could have been made. Never going to get a full repeal in the last six years. Not going to happen. But right. traction could have been made that would have laid the groundwork for the Republican candidates now, and that wasn't done. Yeah, look, look, look. We just need to dispel with this fiction that Barack Obama does not know what he's doing. <laughs> He knows exactly what he is doing. Obamacare was not a mistake. The Iran deal was not a mistake. Mm-hmm. Whatever the yeah. other thing was was not a mistake. You know, while while we're at it, let's just dispel with this fiction once and for all that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing because he really does know exactly what he's doing. 
Um, and if I could just add on that, I, I think we need to dispel the myth that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing. Um, I think it's very obvious that he knows what he's doing. And uh, <laughs> I don't know why Chris Christie kept saying that. I really don't. Like, what What do you mean he doesn't? Of course he knows, but he's not exactly a conservative, so he's not going to do what you want him to do. Like, uh, uh, He annoys me. I didn't actually watch the debate. I've just seen like clips from it, and then I've seen that quote posted everywhere, so it's just been stuck in my head all day long today, just looping over and over. Let's dispel with this fiction. <laughs> Here's the great thing about that, though. The voters love that line. They don't love the exchange because it was awkward, and I hated it, even as a Rubio guy. But what he was saying... When you think about it in a non-ironic way and you just listen to it, you're like, yeah, he's right. Because we always have the argument, like, is Obama evil or is he stupid? Well, he's not stupid because he does know exactly what he's doing. So I think I'm glad he brought it up, but I'm not glad he repeated it over and over and over again. Microbot 3000. Yeah, he didn't get the right Microsoft software update, so <laughs> the overlords were slacking a little bit. So... Here's a question for you guys, and Kyle will get you first on this one. Which, if if it hasn't been talked about as much because obviously the presidential election's kind of stealing the show, but if the Republicans had to choose between having the Senate and having the presidency, which do you think is a bigger priority and why? Well, thankfully, we don't really have to have that discussion because I feel like the Senate... We're not going to lose it. However, I like I think, the confidence. Oh, I, I mean, it's it's more based on just analysis of facts. I just feel like there's not a way we really lose that. However, I think it's important to to understand the importance of having a president that supports your party's platforms and ideals. I think the biggest thing too is that right now there's a president who refuses to work with Congress. You'll never see Paul Ryan and Barack Obama sit down and work together and get something done. And there's two reasons. One is because Obama won't sit with Paul Ryan, and the other is because Paul Ryan won't sit with Obama because the image of them working together is so bad for PR from either side. Right. It just makes them look like sellouts and traitors, and, and that's wrong. I don't think that's fair. However, that's the way it is. So I think the idea that the idea is that having a Republican president with the current leadership we have in Congress, and again, I'll point to Paul Ryan because I really like Paul Ryan. And I think when you have a Republican president that's going to be able to sit and work with him and get things done in Congress, I really think, and it all depends on who the president is too, but I really think if it's, if you get the right guy in there, I think you really have a good chance of getting the right things done and also still being able to listen to the left and still being able to say, hey, where do you guys stand on this? Where can we find a little bit of common ground on some things? Where can there be some give and take? Because that is how government works. I mean, it legislation works on give and take. So I think it's very important to have a Republican president because then you're going to have conservative ideals being pushed through Congress, which we haven't had in seven years. You could argue we didn't have in 15 years. Yeah. I mean, I kind of take, I guess, somewhat of the more opposite approach. I think the presidency is the most important goal right now, partially because I just want to see Chuck Schumer and Ted Cruz kind of duke it out if Ted Cruz wins the presidency. That's going to be a Kodak moment, um, as it were. And I think, you know, for all, um, you know, in, intents and purposes, the Senate 
it's very likely that even if a Republican were to win the presidency, we'd lose the Senate um, just based on the number of Republican seats that are up right now, um, including a couple flukes like Mark Kirk over here in Illinois, who's right. more than likely going to lose, not through a, any fault of his own. But um, so, and I think it's important to have a strong executive going forward for the next four years because, but it would depend on the type of executive. I mean, I, that pen in the phone mentality, as much as we, you know, lauded uh, Obama for it, it's it's not, you know, it's, it's pretty attractive um, when, you know, especially in 2012 when the big issue was line item veto, whether to bring that back up and, you know, horrible checks on unchecked power on the federal executive, but I think, you know, at least for now, the, the Senate's something to easily work back for 2018, but I think going forward, there needs to be, you know, a full-fledged focus on keeping it out of the hands of somebody like Hillary or Bernie. That makes sense. I, I kind of go back and forth on this one, uh, because I feel like a lot of the Senate's role is to, like, check executive authority and you know you have the power to confirm nominees and ratify treaties and whatnot but having a good executive in there so that we don't need to stop the authority I feel like is probably more important mm-hmm. yeah and I mean especially with and it's to no necessary fault of the Republicans in the Senate, but, you know, when Harry Reid used the nuclear option um, a couple years ago to start passing, you know, getting cabinet positions appointed and things, and it just didn't look very well for the Republicans now. Yes, they won in 2014, but it's a midterm in the final midterm of Obama's term. It, It was the Republicans' race to lose at that point. But I think, you know, especially the type of executive that you have appointing the right judges that can kind of, that will be conservative or, you know, exercise judicial restraint, but they won't be toxic enough to where the Democrats will, you know, wish that they had never given that power up to the Republicans or would be more likely to use it in the first place. Um, And especially because now, you know, we have, this didn't apply to the, um, the nuclear option, but we'll have a couple, at least two Supreme Court justices up for nomination, uh, up vacancies probably, uh, whoever the next president is, and that's very important. Yeah, definitely. Now, both of you have um, spoken about the importance of working together, Republicans and Democrats, and I am definitely there with you. I... um, you know, it's funny that I, I said just a few minutes ago that our biggest issue was the national debt, but I take it back, and I've said here on the show before, and this is what I actually think, I just wasn't thinking of it at the moment, that our biggest issue that we face is our national disunity because it prevents us from getting anything meaningful done. And even if you look at um, Obamacare, it was passed through with, like, it's definitely the most um, partisan bill in recent history. And so, yes, it got something done, but half of the country plus absolutely despises it and would then reject everything 
from President Obama after that. Even anything good, air quotes, he might have done. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so as far as unity is concerned, compromise is definitely a, a very important part of that. And I know, Kyle, you mentioned this, but I'm just curious, like, what hills would you be willing to die on? Like, for me, I'd be willing to risk... Like, like the hill for me to die on would be abortion. And um, having a full, I guess, repeal? Overturning? I don't know what it's called judicially of Roe versus Wade. I would love to see abortion be illegal in this country, and I would be willing to give up a whole lot of other things to see that happen. What What are those issues for you two? Oh my gosh, yeah, abortion's definitely right there on my list. Here, here's the thing I use when I explain abortions. People always ask about, they say, well, what about the rape incest? Um, well, you know, what about in those cases? First of all, that's a, such a small fractal percent. Second of all, 2%. That's, that's still no reason to take a life because you you were the victim of an abuse does not mean that that child cannot bring some kind of joy into the world out of that. It's kind of the mentality of something good coming out of something really, really bad, which people don't want to think about that. They think of that child more as a punishment and more of a reminder of what happened instead of a way to actually cope and move on with it. And I've heard this from an actual story of someone who was born because their mother was raped and they were a child um, from that rape and that her mom always saw that as a reminder that as horrible as her circumstance was, that God always provided something good out of the worst circumstances, which is such a great story. But anyway, obviously people don't want to hear that because people hate God nowadays. Um, (laughs) But I I think that's important. The other argument is the case of life of the mother. But when it comes to that, it's not abortion. It's the same as if there's a car accident and the EMTs can only save one life out of two. You're not killing the other person. You're just not able to save them. And so you have to determine which life is more, you know, which which life is better to save, and it's a horrible decision for a doctor to have to make. But the decision in that case would go to the mother. You would choose to save the mother over the child. But there there should never be a choice to kill a child from the mother. That's not acceptable. We wouldn't let them kill their children outside of the womb. Why would we let them kill them in? I mean, that's it's such a horrible argument. It's not a choice for anyone's benefit other than the mother's, and it literally kills a human life, which the fact that anybody can justify that is beyond morally apprehensible. I, I, I'm I I'm right there with you, so I just want to make sure you're saying abortion's also what you would say is your hill to die on? Oh, absolutely. So to speak. Uh, I mean, I think abortion's a, an important issue, but again, until we have a clear majority on the court, there's no real way that that can come about, other by constitutional amendment, which won't right. happen. Um, and, but in the, in, the, you know, in the meantime, there's certain things that can be done, but it's not really an issue, unfortunately, at this point, that we can really do anything about um, in terms of the procedures itself. There's certainly a whole bunch of other things we can do. It probably should be doing, if we were smart about it, um, that we could do. But I'd say... Um, you know, the hill to die on, um, I, and I, I hate that because I'm not really an extremist in anything. Not like you. Okay. Not that I don't use that in a bad way, but it's just like no, no. I I'm, 
I kind of really am more about compromise, getting something done, than I am about, you know, dying. Because I would, I can say that what I absolutely will not stand for is an attempt to shut down the government again, by either the president or the legislature. I think that's the worst thing that we can do, when you know, when half the time, you know, the budget for example, isn't really even an actual law. It's just kind of a guideline. And when they can't even come together on the guidelines that they're going to use for the, you know, the six months or the year that they're going to use, that to me, you know, says a lot about, you know, not their integrity, but their just, their desire to even get something done. And so when we shut down the government, and I think it's been shut down twice under this president. Um, I think so. I could, I could be wrong about that. I know Cruz led the first one, sort of, um, and then I think there was another one right around New Year on 2013 to 2014. I don't, I don't remember exactly. Um, but I, I, that's exactly, you know, we, we need people that are going to work, and you can't work if the government shuts down. And so... It's going to require some long hours, but that's, I mean, that's what we need to get done. Yeah, shutting down the government is not an accomplishment. It's not something to be proud of. CC Ted Cruz. <laughs> uh, it's, you, should not be, you should not be proud that there are very few things that shutting down the government for is, is worth, and none of the reasons it's been shut down for have actually been reasons that I believe would be worth shutting it down for. So I think it's kind of like, oh, look at me, I shut down the government and everyone hates me and I'm so great. That's not a good argument for anybody because it literally means that you were just such a horrible person at your job of compromising and governing that everybody just quit for a while until they could get... I mean, it just you're so stubborn and you refuse to actually do the job of a legislator, which is to legislate. And it requires compromise and it requires working together. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't be there. Well, that's I, cool. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say my favorite congressman, Justin Amash, calls it legislation by crisis, and I think it's really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm, that's kind no, of tech I'm that's a good. Though. I'm saying that's a good term, and the concept is dumb, just to clarify that. Yeah, yeah. No, but that's kind of Ted Cruz's whole shtick when he, like, you know... He's just kind of reading green, green eggs and ham on the Senate floor, you know, because he's really got nothing else to talk about. and Or he, you know, is asking for amendments to defund Planned Parenthood when they're trying to pass something completely unrelated to that just to stir up controversy. And he calls Mitch McConnell a liar on the Senate floor for no good reason you know, it, it's kind of a sick, but it gets annoying after a while, and it's you know, it's yeah. it'll spell problems for him in the general. It it is it is why another one of the reasons why I really like Paul Ryan as speaker is you look at what he's been doing since the start of the new year, mm-hmm. even right at, right after the omnibus bill, he started getting to work actually trying to push conservative. And I mean, I've had this with a thousand people. That bill was gonna suck anyway because it, you, that's not reflective of the Paul Ryan speakership because he was there for seven weeks. Whatever, it's a whole different rant. But he started working from immediately after that to say, we are going to start right now focusing on next year. We're not going to wait until we're getting to the very bitter end. We're going to start working on it now. We're going to start pushing these things. He's already put out a ton of things. They've got a bunch of different committees working on stuff. I genuinely think we are seeing a different wave of leadership 
from the Republicans where it's saying, we're not going to sit here and wait till the very, very bitter end and then throw something together that nobody's going to read. I think this is a, a new leadership that will actually do things. And people may not agree with the things they do, but at least we'll completely understand the things that they're doing and at least we'll know all of them before the day that they have to be signed or the government shuts down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great. As much as I'd love to keep talking, I think we'd better wrap it up for today. Thanks so much for coming on, and I'll have you guys um, tell us just one more interesting tidbit about yourself and then tell the audience where they can find you online. So I guess, Evan, you go ahead and go first. Okay. Uh, interesting tidbit about me. Um, I once got a college professor of mine in a whole lot of trouble uh, for calling Republicans racist and uh, a couple of things, and I ended up in the no-spin zone with Bill O'Reilly, so that was kind of fun. Uh, you can find that if you know how to spell my name and have access to the Internet. Um, it'll <laughs> be one of the links that comes up. Uh, it was my first interview ever, so it's, you know, it's not the greatest, but whatever. Uh, and you can find me exclusively at Outset right now or on Twitter. Um, and then Kyle and I will actually have some dueling columns coming out uh, in a couple days here, and I'll, I'll let him talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, real quick, just to mention what that is, we're, we're talking about the draft and the idea of the draft, the concept. We're going to be writing dueling columns. He's writing in support. I'm writing against. Those will be coming out later this week, pending the amazing edi editing job of the ever-wonderful Stephen Perkins. Or lack <laughs> thereof. <laughs> well, I have to suck up to him because I've been jerk enough lately and I want to be on his good side. Um, it, it, Interesting fact about me. Uh, I was kicked out of the White House. Really? One time I'd been on a tour. My family was because my little brother, who was probably four at the time, climbed up onto the south lawn while oh, no. they took us out there. He climbed up and started running around. And nice. thankfully, Secret Service didn't, like, come and pile drive him into the ground. But they kindly escorted us off of the White House property, which was kind of a shame. But it was also the first time I was ever surrounded by a bunch of men with guns, and I realized I should probably not do something stupid right now. Um, you can find me on Twitter at not Kyle Foley. I know it's confusing, but the person with the handle for my name never used their Twitter account for three years until I called them out on it, and then they magically showed back up, which made me really sad. You can find me there spewing lots of shenanigans and occasionally some really good insight. I'm also on outsetmagazine.com, but I don't write too much there yet, although you'll see a lot more from me coming up soon. All right, well... Thank you guys so much for joining us this week on Second Look. We'll say goodnight. Thank you so much for tuning in to Second Look today. I hope you enjoyed this episode and you go into iTunes and rate it with five stars and then subscribe so you don't miss any episodes in the future. You can find all of our Outset podcasts at outsetmagazine.com slash podcasts. I'm Benjamin Green and I hope you'll follow me on Twitter at B 
GreenAZ and follow my awesome editor at Stephen with a PH underscore Perkins. That about wraps it up for today. We'll see you next time.